invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. We'll be looking in a moment here at verse 15 and following. Genesis 50, verses 15 and following. If you're using the Red Pew Bible that's there in front of you, it would be on page 52. Page 52 of the Pew Bible, Genesis 50, 15. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. It alone flawlessly reveals what is right and good and true and pure. And so we must believe what it says, and we must live as it shows us how to live. So give heed now to the authoritative word of the Almighty, beginning in Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring, a, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. You'll recall that Jacob adopted Joseph's sons. Here we see Joseph adopting uh, the sons of his child, his grandchildren. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, reveal to us the message of this, your word, and apply it to our hearts and minds. If needed, convict us of sin. And for sure, encourage us in faith. Grow us in confidence. And let us know the grace that you offer through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is, in all likelihood, the last sermon we will bring from the book of Genesis for a long time to come. And as such, I was looking for a way to kind of tie it all together, bring all the loose ends of, Joseph, of Genesis, as it were, to a conclusion and bring it home. And yet I couldn't do so. I was really struggling to pull it together. And so I turned to the commentaries and I listened to some other preachers on this subject. And I realized 
The reason I was struggling was because Genesis doesn't really conclude. It just kind of ends. It doesn't really wrap up as a story. Like many movies nowadays, it kind of leaves it hanging. It begs for a sequel. And so next week we're going to pick up with the book of Exodus. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It really does beg for a sequel. It asks, it leaves you hanging and wondering what's next. And the clues are right there if we're open to seeing them. It only takes a little bit of literary analysis to realize what I'm saying is true. For example, what is the very last word of the book of Genesis? Look down at your Bible. By the way, it's the same in English and in Hebrew. The last word is Egypt. Now, if you're writing a story to Israelis, to Hebrews, you don't end on that note. A good story does not end with Egypt. And they lived happily ever after in Egypt. And by the way, it doesn't even end with living happily ever after, does it? And Joseph rested in peace ever after in Egypt? You don't end any story anywhere in any culture with death. Even biographies don't end in the death of the subject. Rather, they end with telling you about her legacy, or they end uh, uh, telling you, you know, some famous inspirational quote he gave. But no good story ends with death. No good story ends in the, world, in the, 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 the uh, land of your enemy, Egypt. And so we have, by design, a story that comes to an end, but not a conclusion. And it leaves us asking the question, what's next? What comes after us? And to a large degree, we're clued into that by our author. Because that's the question the brothers are asking. As their father dies, they're wondering, now what? What's next? Has our younger brother just been biding his time? Has he just been waiting? You know, our mothers have been dead for some years now. Now our father's dead, and now Joseph is going to let us have it. And I can tell you, sadly, I can tell you as a pastor, their fear is not unwarranted. I have seen this happen in families. In the midst of planning mom's funeral, before dad's body is even cold, the family begins to unravel. The backbiting, the infighting begins to happen, and it comes a part of the scenes. And always, 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 it is a function of unresolved sin within that family. There has not been the reconciliation that should have happened, and that's the case with these brothers. They know they deserve reprisal. They were, in effect, will we asking, will we get what we deserve? And as their father's body lies on the physician's embalming table, they're wondering if their bodies will be there soon. And you see, if you don't remember the story, let me remind you why they're worried about it. Because they did great evil to the younger brother, Joseph. They had first planned to kill him. And then they realized if we sell him as a slave, we can make a little profit and we don't have to worry about body disposal. And so they sold him into the hands of the Egyptians. That's why they're concerned about what's happening. And so the brother's question of what will happen next, will we get what we deserve, 
really does tie in to this kind of abrupt ending in the story of the book of Genesis. What will happen next? And in many ways, we can look at all of Genesis through that filter. We can take a look at the entire book through that question of, will we get what we deserve? Go back to the very, you don't have to actually turn there, because it's familiar probably to everybody. Go back to the very first verse of the book of Genesis. What did it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in that moment, did we get what we deserve? It's kind of a weird question to even think about, isn't it? We didn't exist. How could we possibly deserve anything? We didn't deserve good or evil. We didn't deserve pleasure or pain. We didn't deserve because we didn't exist. And so right there we recognize that even in our very creation, there was an act of God's grace. He didn't have to create us. He didn't owe us creation. He didn't owe us our existence. It was a kindness of God to us. It was an undeserved, unearned favor. And that's the definition of grace. Something undeserved, something unearned. A kindness, a favor, a benefit that's not owed to us. You know, for all of life's difficulties, and to be sure there are many, you have chosen repeatedly to be here on the earth. Whether it's wearing your seatbelt or installing smoke alarms, uh, 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 looking both ways before you cross the street. In each of these little things, you make the conscientious decision to go on living here on earth. You recognize subtly that it's a wonderful blessing. It's good to be alive, and God granted us that, despite all the difficulties we brought on ourselves through sin. It is better to be than not to be. Life on this earth is a gracious gift from God. But the grace of God's creation goes beyond merely our existence. Now, analogies for God's creation are a little tough to come up with because we simply don't operate the way he operates. So the best that I could do was to uh, draw on my own childhood. I had the biggest, baddest sandbox in the neighborhood. It was awesome. 12 by 12 you know, a foot and a half deep. And I was lord over that three thousandths of an acre. Yes, I did the calculation. <laughs> that three thousandths of an acre, I was lord over it. And in my sandbox, I could create worlds. Worlds in which my astronauts could explore strange unknown planets. Worlds in which my Hot Wheels could race. Worlds in which my G.I. Joe action figure never ceased harassing my sister's Barbie. <clears throat> she still hasn't forgiven me for that. These were worlds in which I had complete control. Now, as much as those, those worlds brought me pleasure, in that sense, I was God-esque. I was God-like. He takes pleasure in the world that he has created, just as I took pleasure in the worlds that I created in that sandbox. But my similarity to God ends abruptly. For it never crossed my mind, forget the fact that I couldn't do it if I wanted to, it never even crossed my mind to try to create a world in which the things I created would enjoy being created. 
It never crossed my mind to, to invent, to think of, to imagine, even in my own imagination, I never imagined that my creation would enjoy my creation. But that's how God created us. He didn't merely give us existence. He gave us an existence in which he said, be like me. I've made you in my image. I've worked, I've created, I've made a garden. You do the same. Live in this beautiful garden I've given you. And extend it, expand it, grow it, enjoy gardening. Without all the, the overcoming of weeds, the curse of the thorns and thistles didn't yet exist. It would be gardening for gardening's pleasure and enjoyment. And by the way, Adam, I've enjoyed making you human beings, so here's a wife. Together with her garden and together with her make some more human beings. And who wouldn't enjoy that? What a world to live in. Satisfying work. After a hard day's work, you would be pleased with what you'd accomplished. Not frustrated over all the difficulties. And then you get to go home to the beautiful family that you've made. Enjoying one another. God didn't merely make us to exist. He made us to exist and to enjoy what he had created. That is a phenomenal blessing of God. Now, God put in that garden a boundary marker. A reminder that he was God and we were not. And he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't go there. He said, that's the reminder that I'm God. And he warned us. He gave us a heads up. But they, we ate anyway. And in eating, what were we warned would happen? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What did we deserve? Death. Did we get what we deserved? In the immediate aftermath, God comes to Adam and Eve. And as he's talking through, as they're discussing what happened, who told you that you were naked? You know, who, who, where did, who told you to eat of the tree? And all of that is unfolding. What does God promise to them? He says, I will raise up from the seed of the woman one who will strike the serpent's head. In other words, I will create one, I will make one, I will bring about one who will make this all right, who will put an end to these problems. Not only did they not immediately die, but they received a promise of hope for the future, of a day in which that God would make right what they should have made right. Did we get what we deserved? We did not. We got more grace. We got more kindness from God. And Cain then kills Abel. What does he deserve? Well, the text goes on to tell us that whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. He deserves death. But God lets him live. Not only does God let him live, God puts a seal of protection on him so that no one will kill him. So that he will live out a full life and die of natural causes. And does Eve deserve a replacement for having lost Abel? 
It's hard to say that she is a sinner, that Adam and that she and her husband Adam would have deserved another child, and yet what does God give them? He gives them Seth. A child who believes, who obeys, who grows up to be a worshiper of God. Did we do, uh, in the aftermath of all of that, did we learn to obey? Did we learn to follow God? Well, what do we read? In Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, had I had the cleverness in my sandbox to create creations that would have enjoyed my creation, I suppose that sentence sounded better in my head, had I had that kind of cleverness, I would have been outraged and furious had they rebelled against me and decided they were going to go do their own thing. And I would have taken the garden hose and sprayed it and obliterated all the sand castles and started over again. And you say, well, that's what God did. Except he didn't fully obliterate us, did he? Yes, he reminded us of the threat. Yes, he reminded us that there are consequences for unrepentant sin. And the flood came. But he graciously preserved a remnant of humanity. Noah and his family were kept safe. And in the aftermath of the flood, what did God do? He sent the rainbow. He sent the, the promise, the covenant, I'll never do this again. I'll never wipe out the earth with a flood again. Again, we did not deserve that. It was a kindness, a grace of God that we had not earned. Fast forward. Abram is living in Ur, marrying his sister, worshiping the gods and goddesses of the Mesopotamians. What does such a, a vile behavior deserve? But God calls him and redeems him and saves him and makes him the father of all the faithful and makes him a great nation. And he is enshrined forever as one of the most important human beings to ever live. He flees a famine. He goes to Egypt. And what does he do there? He lies about his wife. And what comes of that? Sarah ends up in the bed of Pharaoh. I was going to ask the women here to tell me what Abraham deserves, but it's a G-rated service, so we'll move on. He leaves Egypt not getting what he deserved. He leaves Egypt a phenomenally wealthy man. God was gracious to him. Sarah, distraught, upset, angry that she doesn't have a child, what does she do? She makes her slave sleep with her husband as a surrogate mother. The slave had no sin. Does Sarah deserve kindness from God for that kind of behavior? And yet what does she eventually get? The longing of her heart, her own biological child, Isaac. Isaac is a glutton. Glutton. He, uh, despite God's clear preference for Jacob, Isaac loves Esau because Esau makes good food. How sad. And what does that kind of self-indulgent disregard for God's preferences deserve? And yet for all time our God will be known by the name of Isaac. There in verse 24 of our chapter, we see for the first time 
uh, what will be known forevermore, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God chooses to be known by the name of Isaac, despite Isaac's, Isaac's disregard for God's preferences. It's like naming a car after the world's worst driver. Which is not deserved. Jacob steals, he lies, he deceives, and God honors him with a royal funeral. Do the barren women of Genesis necessarily deserve children? But what do Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel get? The kindness of God. Do younger siblings necessarily deserve to be favored over older children? And as an oldest child, I find this difficult. But God readily, routinely, regularly shows great grace to Abel, to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Rachel, to Joseph, and to Ephraim. And all of this is to say nothing of the covenant rejectors. Remember, Ishmael and Esau, they reject God's gracious covenant, and he still blesses them, making them each rich, wealthy, powerful men in their own lives, and granting them nations that would arise out of them and make their name great. And all of this brings us back around to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers know what they deserve. They first plotted to kill him and ended up selling him as a slave. They were cruel to the young Joseph. And now he has the opportunity for a retribution. And the theme of Genesis continues. They do not get what they deserve. Not only does Joseph not exact retribution, he actually goes further and blesses them. Look at verse 21. He says to them, Do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. And what does it say? And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is not a cold peace. This is not simply the shelving of hostilities. This is warmth and tenderness, and kindness, and fellowship. Not only do they not get the retribution they deserve, not only do they not get the justice they deserve, they're shown great mercy. They're shown great kindness. They receive much goodness they do not deserve either. And so the scene actually reverses another theme of Genesis. We have seen the theme of sibling rivalry. Cain versus Abel, Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Leah versus Rachel, Joseph versus the ten. We have seen this theme over and over again. And yet here at the close of the book of Genesis, we see the theme of sibling rivalry put away. As there is peace among the brothers. Do they get what they deserve. And by the way, and not for nothing, but we should not go on without noting the basis of this reconciliation. It's forgiveness. Look at verse 17. Please forgive the transgression of your servants. Forgiveness is requested. Forgiveness is granted. How often do we allow resentment to fester and to tear relationships apart. 
families are torn apart. Churches are torn apart. Marriages are torn apart because neither party will ask for forgiveness and neither party will grant forgiveness. What we see here in the brothers is the humility to seek forgiveness and in Joseph, the grace to grant it. Now remember, the setting in which this book was written was first read. Genesis wasn't written to 21st century Americans. It was instead written while, they're, while the, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness on their way from the slavery in Egypt to the promised land. The Israelites have only recently come out of slavery in Egypt and they're hearing this story and they understand where the family is headed. They understand what comes next in the end of the book of Genesis, the bondage, the hardship, the 400 years of tribulation and trial, they get all that is set before Joseph and his brothers. And they understand, as we must understand, that the only way this family is going to survive that kind of difficulty, that kind of furnace of intensity, is if they are united to one another if they are truly a union as a family, so that they might endure the hardship together. And does any one of us here believe that the pressure on this family, on God's household, on God's family, is going to decrease in the coming years and decades? Do any of us imagine for a moment that there's going to be less pressure on us as the family of God? You know, it's so-called Pride Month. Once the traditional month, month to celebrate heterosexual marriage, June is now a celebration of anything and everything that is a perversion of God's plan for gender and marriage. And when that is the direction the world is headed, can we believe for even a moment that a conservative, Bible-based church such as this is going to have an easy go of it? Do we really think that the hostility coming at us from the outside is going to decrease? Do we imagine for a moment that we are going to be well-suited to go this alone? That we don't need to be a united family? That we don't really need forgiveness and reconciliation internally? We can just kind of coast. This family was facing 400 years of hostility. They had to enter it. United forgiving one another and asking for forgiveness. If we want to weather the storms ahead of us together, if we want to carry one another through and help each other, we have got to have the humility to seek forgiveness when we're wrong and the grace to grant it when it is requested. Genesis ends with a story of forgiveness and reconciliation because in a real sense, yeah, it is the story of the whole book. We sinned against God. But rather than getting what we deserved, immediate death, we got the promise of one who would come and stomp on the serpent's, serpent's head, ending his threat to us. Rather than perishing in the flood, we got the rainbow promise that God would never do that again. Rather than the pain and hardship of childless, childlessness, which, by the way, would be a fitting thing in light of the curse on childbearing. But rather than that, long-bearing women become mothers. 
Rather than punishment, men become wealthy. Rather than revenge, brothers get forgiveness and love. The story of the book of Genesis really is a story of an ongoing process of reconciliation. And to be sure, Genesis does not name a baby born some 2,000 years later in the little town of Bethlehem. Nor does it describe a virgin becoming pregnant. Nor does it say anything about a miracle-working carpenter. Twelve disciples, faithful women like Mary, Martha, Mary, and Mary. Ancient Palestine was Mary land long before we were. Genesis does not point directly to Jesus. But it does establish a motif. It does establish a pattern by which God interacts with fallen humanity. It does speak to how God forgives. How God is going to provide one who would make things right. How God is going to preserve always for himself a remnant of this beloved creation he made so graciously. Adam and Eve earned for us what we earn for ourselves every day. The wrath of God and the right to die. But the story of Genesis is one of God extending love, reconciliation, fellowship, hope, brotherhood. In other words, we do not get what we deserve. And we do get so much that we do not deserve. The story of Genesis really is the foundation the, the framework in which the ongoing story of the gospel could be revealed. That God would take on himself the consequences of sin. That he would bestow on us the kindness of his grace, giving us a way to be reunited to him. Giving us a way back to the garden. It really is in many ways Reason number two, why we worship. In case you're curious, reason number one, because he's God and he says so. But reason number two is because he's God and he's gracious. And he's loving. And he's kind. And he makes a way for fallen people to be restored. Through the forgiveness he offers, through the reconciliation he extends in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, Genesis leaves Israel hanging unconcluded, but it leaves Israel hanging with words of great hope. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, as some translations offer, for the saving of many lives. That really is the summary of the gospel of Jesus, is it not? That what we meant for evil, God has turned around. And he worked it for good, for the saving of those who will come to Christ in faith. Let's pray. God, this story of Genesis is an amazing story of your power in creation, of your patience with fallen humanity, of your ordaining all things, of bringing about all that you want, all that you will, all that you speak into being. 
yet is also an amazing story of your patience with us, your love for us, your kindness toward us, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us grace instead. And even as Joseph provided for his brothers and for their little ones, you provide for us and for all those who are far off. And so we come this morning to worship you. We come this morning in hope and in faith. We come this morning clinging to Jesus Christ, the one who has stomped on the serpent's head of the cross, and the one who will restore our access to the tree of life in the garden. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.